All right, preview of coming attractions so you know what's going on. We hit January. We usually have always in the past kind of done some um, series of, of topical expository messages, but, but on a topical basis, you know, picking a subject. And so in the Bible, Christians are described as sojourners and exiles, citizens of heaven. Um, to be in exile is to not live in one's homeland, but to live in a foreign land. And over the next four Sundays, this will start next week, we'll explore this description of being exiles so that we can better understand our identity as exiles, as a community of believers, and its implications for living when we are not at home, but rather in a foreign land. So that'll start next Sunday, and then after that, we will be jumping into the Old Testament book of Isaiah uh, in February. Um, for today, I want to talk about the topic of weakness and strength. If you've ever been in one of those job interviews where the question came up of, identify one of your weaknesses. You know, it's easy to give the strengths, but what's one of your weaknesses? And there's always those great answers of, well, I work too hard, I don't know when to quit, I'm a perfectionist, right? Those sorts of things. Our, our, our culture thrives on strength and shuns weakness. The t-shirts say, be strong, not be weak. We don't celebrate weakness in any way. And Instagram, uh, posts with the hashtag find your strength. There's about 128,000 of those. When it comes to find your weakness, there's about 750. And most of those are find, identify some weakness so you can banish it and become strong because the goal is still strength. We, we, we love strength. A few months ago, I, I saw an interview with a cancer survivor and the last question in the interview is, what did you learn about yourself through this experience? And without skipping a beat, the person said, how strong I am. And I get that. I, I, I understand that facing a life-threatening disease, it's important to have a, a good outlook, good mental, emotional outlook. But, but that answer just struck me in some sense. I learned how strong I am. And it just made me pause and reflect on the cultural language that that so emphasizes, be strong, be determined, have drive, have ambition, get, get what you can out of life, be strong. Weakness, on the other hand, that, that, that means inadequacy, means some lack of sufficiency. I don't have all that I need. I, I, I'm, I'm falling short in some way, and we are rarely anxious to be transparent about our weaknesses. Just look at the political culture. A politician um, never wants to say that anything he or she did was anything less than the absolute right thing to do because they're going to get nailed as being weak on that point, some, some kind of weakness, some kind of flaw, some inadequacy. It's no surprise then that one of the, the aberrations of Christian teaching in our culture is just the overemphasis on prosperity and positivity, how everything is about me and, and living my best life and fulfilling my dreams and, and achieving all that, that I set out to achieve. And that if there's weakness, if there's some experience of weakness, it's because I've, I've lacked faith in, in some way. We can easily be sucked into thinking that it's all about being strong and, and weakness is bad and so we shun that sense of inadequacy. And so on Sunday and the rest of the week, we want our countenance to reflect that profile picture that looks strong and confident. We've got it all together. And yet, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I can probably with one question poke at feelings of inadequacy and weakness. If I ask you, 
How's your battle against temptation and sin going? Have you done this week in that battle against whatever that area is that you struggle with? Think of that area that that sort of go-to response when you're tired or you've been poked at or it's been a bad day. What, what do you say? What do you do? What do you think? How are you doing in that area? And that, that sort of question just immediately provokes in us a, a realization, again, of our inadequacy, how we still struggle in the flesh. If you think about Paul in Romans 7, and he describes his state of being as one who has been made alive in Christ and yet living in the flesh and still drawn to desires that he shouldn't be, still wrestling with the, the struggles of, of the flesh and doing things that are sinning against the Savior. When you think about that, when you think about your own struggles against what you know are the desires of the Spirit for your life, and yet what's churning in your heart, do you feel weak or do you feel strong? And more often than not, we recognize our weakness in those moments, our propensity to yield, the struggle with temptation. So what do we do with such weakness, temptation, hardship, oppression, suffering. I I want us to look at a passage that I think helps us think about this. It's in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. And and as you're thinking about and scrolling to Philippians chapter 3, I I asked this question toward the end of the sermon in in the 830 service, and, and Stuart challenged me, and he said, I think you should ask it earlier on and then come back to it again later, because by the time you ask it later on, everybody knows the right answer and can fill in the blank. And so let me Let me ask it now, put this in front of you, fill in the blank to this. I want to know Jesus and become like him in his blank. I I want to know Jesus and become like him in his blank. What what would you fill in that blank with? We'll, We'll come back to that a little bit later on. Barbara Duguid in a book called Extravagant Grace writes this, the predicament we all share is that while we are new creatures in Christ and have been given Living hearts with which to know and worship God, we are still very sinful people. We remain weak, rebellious, and inclined toward drifting away from God until the day we see him face to face. I want us to think this morning about the gospel's take on weakness and strength because it's very countercultural to the, the culture that says you be strong and you be determined and you do this and you press forward. And then the, the gospel's recognition of our weakness. I want to quote from one other writer. Paul Miller has written a book I would wholeheartedly encourage you toward. It's called J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. He writes this, weakness is the place of wisdom and power. God uses our weakness as a launching pad for his strength. He loves to use low and despised things to defeat human pride. At the heart of the gospel's teaching about strength and weakness is this issue of banishing our pride, of of defeating our arrogance. Pride can go hand in hand with self-sufficiency, with personal strength, with I can do this, uh, it's my accomplishments, it's my resumes, it's my, it's my strength, and all of that can be deadly for us as believers in Jesus Christ. The gospel shows us that we cannot be saved by our own strength or wisdom or achievements, nor can we live by them as followers of Jesus. I, I, I would submit to you, and that, that phrase is, is sort of going to 
define where we're going with the, 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 this passage this morning. I, I would submit to you that the, the first part of that, we say yes and amen to with great ease. I, I cannot be saved by my own strength and wisdom and achievements. I, I believe that. I am trusting in Christ. I understand that to be true. But I would submit to you that we are not as firmly committed to the latter part of that statement, which is not living by my strengths and wisdom and achievement, because I think the de default position for us is to live that way. It is to, to, to revel in our own skill, our own ability, and yet the gospel calls us to something different. And so we're going to look at Philippians 3. We're going to work all the way down through to, to verse 11. And the, the first part of this will be kind of the first part of that statement, which is the reality that you can't be saved by strength, by wisdom, by own achievements. But it's the last part I want to get to when we get down to verse 10 that has to do with the living part as believers in Jesus Christ and what it is to, to live in this manner. But just to kind of set the context, Philippians 3, start of the second half of his letter to the church at Philippi. Um, chapters 1 and 2, if you've read Philippians, you know there's a lot about joy. It's the epistle we often talk about, Paul using joy in it, rejoicing. He's exhorting the Philippians to, to have joy and to rejoice. Philippians 2, 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's repeatedly putting rejoicing in the context of suffering. Even if I'm suffering, I am stri striving to rejoice in that, and I'm urging you to do the same. He'll, he'll do the same thing in chapter 2 when he brings up Epaphroditus, who is a, a brother of the Philippians who has been ministering with Paul and who Paul wants to send back to Philippi. Epaphroditus has been through a harrowing illness that has brought him near to the point of death, and so in Philippians 2.28, Paul says, I'm, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So it, it's been these exhortations to joy, to, to rejoicing, and that's exactly where chapter 3 begins. Verse 1 says, finally, my brothers, what? Rejoice in the Lord. Finally, in case you, you haven't already gotten it, rejoice in the Lord. And then he acknowledges that he's said it repeatedly. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This exhortation to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, is not just a, it's not said in a vacuum. It's not just a phrase. There are times we, we say praise the Lord and we fully mean it. There are times when we can sort of say it as just kind of a fill-in-the-blank sort of phrase. Paul is not just saying rejoice and just making a phrase. He's already set this in context. He's already made it clear going all the way back to the end of chapter 1. As believers, you will face hardship. You will face opposition, therefore you need to stand fast in the joy of the gospel. You need to continue to rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 29, he says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Remember when we went through the book of Acts and, and what Paul went through on his journeys and the conflict and the opposition and the persecution. And Paul says, you've seen it and you will experience it. If, you, if you're not already, expect that, that kind of suffering and that sort of opposition, this will come your way. You will face strife simply for being a follower of Jesus. 
And so that's why when he comes to chapter three, verse one, it says, rejoice in the Lord. He says, it's good for me to say this to you more than once. It's good for me to say it to you again and again, because we need to be reminded of this, to rejoice in the joy of the gospel. So that's why he says here, I'm, that's why I'm telling you to rejoice in your suffering as I have rejoiced in the suffering you've seen in others like Epaphroditus. All right, so we hear that. Rejoice, even in the midst of, of suffering, but, but how do we do that? And so this, this passage is going to, to, to deal with that, to help give us a, a gospel-centered outlook on weakness, and suffering, and strength, understanding the balance between those two as we go through this passage. Paul, what he does to describe that outlook is he does it by way of personal testimony. Shares from his own life. And the personal testimony arises out of some instruction about false teachers. In, in chapter 3, verse 2, he describes the false teachers there. Uh, it says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about those who are preaching Righteousness by virtue of works, righteousness by virtue of circumcision. If you do the works, if you do the circumcision and the ritual and you've, you've followed all of this, he says, watch out for them because they are the ones who are essentially selling you a religion that is performance-based and they're peddling a system of worship where you and God cooperate in such a way as you ultimately are impressing God with your works and you are achieving your righteousness by doing all of these things. He says, watch out for these people who put the emphasis on the flesh. And it's, it's that acknowledgement of the, the flesh and the confidence in one's flesh and in one's doing that then launches Paul into his own testimony. Because Paul's now able to say, listen, I'm not writing as someone who's just an observer of this. I was an active participant in this lifestyle. I, I mean... I know what it is to rely entirely on my works and my flesh and to think that they are the best. I get it. And he says it, if you look at Philippians 3, verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Let me stop there. The first part of this is pedigree. First part of this is the, the, the part that Paul didn't even have any control over, but that God sovereignly ordained for Paul's upbringing. And he says, look, even in that, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Think about tribe of Benjamin. You go, okay, small tribe up north. What, what else do we know about it? Who came from the tribe of Benjamin? Well, it so happens Israel's first king, a guy by the name of Saul, came out of Benjamin. And, and, and what was Paul's name, the, the Hebrew name by which he was recognized? Seems like his parents named him after the great king Saul. And so Paul says, listen, I'm from, I'm from Benjamin. When, when the nations split, when the tribes split, Israel and Judah, Benjamin, even though it was up north, still aligned with Judah, which was the one that sort of remained obedient for a little bit longer of a time. Benjamin was known for warriors who led the way into battle. And so what, what Paul's saying is, I was from the right place. I was born in the right spot. I had the right pedigree. My parents even obeyed the law and they, they took me for circumcision on the eighth day. And so I have the, the heritage. But then I built on that. I added to that with my own resume. So look at then verse five. Continue on that verse. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, 
blameless. He's saying, you want to talk about confidence in the, you want confidence in the flesh, strength, might, one who's, who's done it and who's got it, nobody's a match for me. I set out to be a rabbi of rabbis, and in my mind, I achieved that. If there was ever a strong case to be made for one's religious qualifications, Paul is saying, I don't think anybody could outdo mine. I was scrupulous about observing the ceremonies of the law, about following what it said, just like a Pharisee. I, I kept every little jot and tittle, every little external outward act of the law. And then when, when some of my fellow Jews started following this Jesus of Nazareth, and they, they, they seemed to sort of not minimize, but at least not see the law the way I did, they started to, to not see the law in the way I did as, as that which achieves my righteousness, which was never right, was never the truth. But he said they, they started relying on this grace. I persecuted them. I, I set out to destroy them. I was zealous to crush Christianity. And we know that from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. It, wasn't, it was until Paul is confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then all of that changes. In that moment when, when Jesus meets him on that road, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He comes to the realization in that moment that the only way that anyone is ever made right before God is not on the basis of their pedigree or their resume. It is solely on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that anyone can stand before God having been made right. It's the finished work of Christ. And in Christ alone, Paul recognized all of his fleshly efforts set alongside the substitutionary sacrifice of the Holy One, Jesus Christ. Here's all of what Paul's tried to do, and here is the finished work of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. And now Paul suddenly comes to realize how full of arrogance he has been, how much he has just been boasting in himself when it is Jesus who has accomplished it all. And so look at Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, my impeccable heritage, Benjamin Circumcision, my achievements, pharisaical, blameless concerning the law, a zealous persecutor. All of that suddenly was as worthless as garbage in the face of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was perfect in a way that Paul could only ever have dreamed about. Jesus Christ was the sinless son of God who took on flesh and who lived a perfect life and then endured the shame of the cross and died to, in, in, to receive, to take the punishment for Paul's sinful boasting. Paul's arrogant claims were put on Jesus. And God the Father punished them in the sinless one in Jesus. The pride with which Paul used to claim to be a blameless servant 
was actually put on the one who was the blameless servant, the one who was sinless. And that sin and that pride was put on Jesus so that Jesus would receive the wrath of God and be punished and would be crucified and risen and then would be able to give to Paul a righteousness, as he says, that's not my own. It comes from faith in Jesus Christ, and it depends on faith. It it is simply my resting myself in Jesus. These are life-changing, earth-shattering truths for Paul. And and they should be for us, that all of our sin and all of our pride and arrogance and all was put on Jesus in order that they might be punished in him. So much so when Paul later writes 1 Corinthians in in, in chapter 1, he's writing to a young church that is in a cosmopolitan area that has this great admiration that they would fit our culture today. You know, science, hashtag science. You know, they, they loved human genius. They loved rhetoric. They loved thoughtfulness and and facts and and all that kind of stuff. And Paul writes to them, and at the beginning of 1 Corinthians says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is an educated Jewish scholar who has dedicated his life until the point of that road in Damascus had dedicated his life to the observance of the Jewish law, who's now saying, the only reason that I am in the kingdom of God is because God chooses weak, lowly, despised, foolish people. And that must be me. That, that God rescued me. He's not using language here that, that, and certainly his opponents and his persecutors would use that kind of language to say weak and foolish and lowly. He's not using it because they use it. Paul's saying this to his fellow travelers, to his fellow disciples of Jesus and saying, this is us. This is, this is who we were when, when God rescued us. Foolish, despised, weak, and lowly. And he chose us so that he might be magnified and none of us would have any grounds on which to boast. You and I did not bring our wisdom, our strength, our, 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 our skills to the table to impress God, to compel him to save us. We didn't negotiate with God to convince him that we were some, somehow praiseworthy or worthy of, of saving. He chose us in spite of our weakness and foolishness. That's what God's word says, and that's, that's the basis of our testimony. All of that speaks to the first part of the proposition I gave you at the beginning that I said kind of outlined this sermon, and that is this. The gospel shows us that we cannot be saved by our own strength or wisdom or achievements. We get that, nor can we live by them as followers of Jesus. Here's the, here's the struggle part for us. It's where the, the gospel continues to have this effect on us to understand our need for his power and our weakness. The second part about not living by our own strengths or achievements or wisdom is what Paul gets into next. And if you look down at verse 10, Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had just said in verse 9 that I want to be found in Christ, justified by faith in his saving work with a righteousness that he has imparted to me, his righteousness given to me. All that I've done is put my faith in Jesus Christ. I have acknowledged that I am a sinner in need of salvation, and I have put my trust in him 
alone. Having done that now, it is my goal, he says in verse 10, it is my ambition, it is my, my when he says that I may know him, it really has the idea of that, that now my goal is to know Christ intimately by living in the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings that I may become like him in his death. There's the fill in the blank part, right? That we, we talked about earlier, to become like him in his death. Paul, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, Paul, like you, came to that place of being enabled to see, I am a sinner, I am in need of God's grace, I am weak and I am foolish and I am surrendering to Jesus. If you are trusting in, in Jesus Christ this morning, by God's grace, that's, that's where you are. But once there, Paul did not suddenly become strong, self-sufficient, able to stand on his own. That, that's his point here in verse 10. He's been dealing with this whole confidence in the flesh piece and saying, I used to do this. I not only couldn't get saved by that, but I can't revert back to that now as a believer in Jesus Christ and now stand on my own accomplishments because even now, I desperately need power from outside myself to live in a manner that pleases Christ. I desperately need the resurrection power he speaks of, and it must be God's power. He uses that, that term power throughout his letters to, to go back, take us back to the resurrection and say, God's raising of Jesus from the dead should stand to us as the ultimate display of sovereign power. It's simply raising Jesus up after being crucified on the cross. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The power of the gospel, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God that saves us is also the power of God which sustains us, which grows us, which transforms us, which we must rely on and depend on. So as we grow weary in the flesh, as we are rocked by a temptation that comes along, as we are confronted with suffering, as we are confused by circumstances, as we are enduring pain, all of that is designed by, by God to be a continuous reminder of our weakness and our need for God's power. All of that is purposeful in getting us to a place and saying, it's not about all of my achievements and my strength and that I can somehow function independently. And, and, and the pathway to that is what he's giving right here in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We... We think of power, if you do word association, I say the word power, what kind of things come to mind? Victory, glory, success, achievement, power, authority, those sorts of things come to mind. My flesh, when I think of Christ's power, wants to immediately sort of fill that in with a power that's measured in success and prosperity and good health and abundant blessing. And, and there's a sense in which that's right, because any blessing I have, any health that I have, that, that's all attributed to God's power. That clearly is his work, but, but that's not what this verse says. It says that the believer's fullest experience of God's power is in deep fellowship with Christ's suffering. 
that the, the awareness, the communion with, with power, the experience of power is as we commune with his suffering and become like him in his death. That's, that's where this gets confusing and difficult for us. I need to enter in to the sufferings of Jesus so that I might be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what it's saying here. When it says to to share in there in verse 10, share his sufferings, it's the common word for fellowship, koinonia. One of the reasons we came here this morning to worship and to to, to hear the teaching of God's word, to sing, and and part of why we're here this morning and doing this corporately is because we love fellowship. We love communing together, doing this together. And that's the same word that Paul's using here of this desire to fellowship and commune with the suffering of Christ, that I would partner with that, engage with it, so that I might be conformed to his image. When it says become like him in the ESV in verse 10, there's a a word Paul uses here that's nowhere else in the Greek Bible. The root of the word is morphe, We think of a form to morph into something, the form of something, so shape or form. But but Paul extends the word out, turns it into a, a passive verb form so that it essentially means taking the same form as, being made into the same form as another. In other words, the idea here is becoming like him is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The point is this, for our lives to look like Christ, for our lives to take the shape of Christ, they will necessarily have to take the shape of his death and his resurrection. That's the hard part for us, is that fellowshipping with his suffering, enduring hardship and pain is part of God's design for us to conform us to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, it speaks of our life as just this process of being transformed from glory to glory into the, into the ultimately into the image of Christ. It's this ongoing work until we are in his presence. I don't know about you, but when I think of being transformed into the image of Christ, I tend to think in terms of outcomes. I need to be more loving. If I'm going to be like Christ, I need to be more loving. I need to be more humble. I need to be more patient. I need to be more sacrificial. I need to be more holy, right? I I need to be these things because that's Christ-like. The the challenge, though, is how do I get there? We won't say it quite this way because we know theologically it's just right, but but by our actions and our mind, what we're actually saying is, well, just do it. Just be loving. Just be more humble. Just be more gracious. Just be more sacrificial. Be more compassionate. Be more kind. Come on, do it. Just get on it and do it. And, and listen, there, there's an element to this that I, I get and is right in the sense that we are called to obey and we should obey. We should do the loving thing. We should do the sacrificial thing. But it's the power that enables the doing that that Paul's emphasizing here. And that is, I've got to experience weakness and strife and challenge and hardship and that it's in that that Christ is cultivating these things in me. It's in that experience of weakness that he is conforming me, that he is causing me to become more sacrificial and more patient because I've now walked through that valley myself and so I can now walk next to my brother or sister who's there and have a better sense for where they are because Christ has used weakness in my life to show me his power and to teach me in that instance. 
It takes suffering to conform me to the image of Christ. But that's not all, right? That's why he speaks of the power of the resurrection here, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There's not simply the the weakness, but there is also then in that the, the power of God, the power of his resurrection that is at work to raise me up through that weakness and through that suffering. That's why Miller titles his book J-Curve. His his whole premise is that life is a series of J's. Just think of the letter J. And, and, And the small part of the J, I know we usually start at the top and we work our way down. Start at the small part on the bottom and work your way down. And his his premise is that 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 life is just this constant series of things that sort of push us down in some way. It's circumstances caused by someone else. Maybe it's someone else's sin. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's job loss. One circumstance after another that that pushes us in a downward pattern that our flesh is not exactly embracing in that moment. Our flesh is not cheering about the downward part of the ride at this point. And yet God is graciously doing that. Why? So that somewhere near the bottom, we cry out for help. Somewhere near the bottom, we repent. We acknowledge, if, if, I've, if I've brought this about by my own sin, I cry out for forgiveness and mercy. If, if, if I am striving to sacrificially love someone and they are difficult, somewhere at the bottom, I am finally crying out saying, Lord, help me to love this person. Help me to be gracious in this situation. Help me to be tenderhearted and forgiving like Christ. It's there in our weakness at the bottom of the J that we experience the need for grace and help and resurrection power, where God does the work then of of transforming us. As we've struggled with this sin in this area, this is where he's doing that work to acknowledge our our cry for help and, and to help us with his power and to meet us in this place. That's where the Spirit of God works to raise us up. And that's why, that's why we, we all can acknowledge, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you've learned the most about Christ through those difficult times. Because it's there at the bottom that you've, you've recognized how he longs to rescue you and come to you, even in your sin, and provide you forgiveness and grace. That, that suffering and that weakness is necessary and it is ongoing. Again, let me go back to what I said to you earlier. You already know the answer now, Philippians 3.10. But again, think about when I, when I first said that. If you didn't know Philippians 3.10, I want to know Jesus and become like him in his blank. What would you naturally put in there? Because I, I'm telling you, if it's me, and I'm honest about that, and you said, I want to know Jesus and become like him in his what, Doug? I would not have immediately said death. That is just not what would come. I want to I become like Jesus in his death. I want to become like Jesus in his love, in his power, in his grace, in his mercy. Fill in any of those. Not death. And yet that's what the text says. By God's design, we are continuously called to still enter into suffering, just as was the pattern of the suffering servant whom God sent, who is Jesus Christ so that we might continuously see these situations and opportunities as chances to depend on him and to call out to him and to experience, again, weakness, that I am in need of his power 
and that through that work, I might be more transformed into his image. And so if I enter into cancer, if I enter into loneliness, if I enter into depression, if I enter into job loss, if I enter into childlessness, if I enter into pain from someone else's sin, if I am beset with temptations, just wicked thoughts that are tempting me, if I am mocked for my faith in Jesus Christ, whatever it is, Scripture is taking me back to the gospel and saying, remember, remember when God first graciously opened your eyes to cause you to see your helpless state? Remember that, that moment when you finally realized you were a sinner in need of a savior? And, and what did the Holy Spirit do in that moment? What did the Holy Spirit compel you to do? To just call out to Jesus and to trust in Jesus and to put your faith in Jesus, to admit your lostness and throw yourself on him. That's what must become the ongoing experience of our lives as believers. It's not getting saved over and over again. It's just going back to the elements of the gospel again and realizing I am still weak and I am still in need of the power and help and grace of God. To be conformed to the image of Jesus is to be conformed to his death and to his resurrection. Remember, a, a chief reason that God saves us the way in which he does that he has chosen us, that he calls us, that he opens our eyes, that he bestows grace and even bestows to us faith to believe in him. A chief reason he does that is to stop our pride. That's what he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of your works. Why? So that you cannot boast. So that you cannot stand before God or anyone else and say, if anybody has confidence in the flesh, look at me. That's a chief reason why this pattern continues throughout our walk with Christ. Because we are not immune from that temptation once we are saved. We don't get saved and suddenly realize, ah, I am now humbly dependent on Christ from henceforth, and I will never think in my own, as in my own strength and self-sufficiency apart from him. We're continuously tempted toward pride, toward boasting, toward I can do this. And suffering and temptation and hardship continue to remind us how desperately we rely on him and we are not self-sufficient. Let me read you another quote from Barbara Duguid in her book, Extravagant Grace. God could have saved us and made us instantly perfect. Instead, he chose to save us and leave indwelling sin in our hearts and bodies to wage war against the new and blossoming desires to please God that accompany salvation. Think of what this means. God thinks that you will actually come to know and love him better as a desperate and weak sinner in continual need of grace than you would as a triumphant Christian warrior who wins each and every battle against sin. I love that quote. Because that's, that's where, if we could design this, that, that's where we would want to be. Saved and all good. And yet, it's this wonderful plan of God that keeps reminding me I still need his grace. I still need his power to be at work in me. I still need to cry out to him. I still need to echo the psalmist saying, Lord, rescue me. Come to me, deliver me. I still need to be like a child in my faith and relying on him. We have fellowships with the suffering of Jesus so that we might better know and experience 
the power that raises the dead. And the beauty of this is the news gets even better because if you look at verse 11, Paul says this, this is not all there is. It's just this series of suffering and power of resurrection. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We get bogged down on verse 11 because for a moment there, it sounds like Paul is almost uncertain. That by any means line is what kind of throws us at that point. And it's as if Paul is saying, I really hope that there's some means by which I attain to the resurrection of the dead. We know he can't be saying that because back in chapter one, he already said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I'm happy to be here and to serve you, but if I had my heart's desire, it'd be to depart and be with Christ. And then he'll go on in, in chapter three and verse 20 and 21 and just speak of total confidence in the believer's resurrection. That the tentative sound to verse 11 is, is, is probably due to one or two reasons, maybe a little bit of both. One is both, is the sense that Paul is saying, I am, I'm attaining to the resurrection, but I, I really don't know the path that gets me there in the sense that it may be martyrdom. I may die or Christ may come for me. I, I, I trust that that's what'll happen. I'm not really sure what the, this path looks like ahead. And, and so there's a level of uncertainty, at least about life's circumstances, not about the resurrection itself. The other thing that Paul could be reflecting here when he says this is it's just another way of him setting aside arrogance and boasting and essentially saying, how, how is it possible that I attain to the resurrection? How is it possible that this guy who I just told you about, zealous for the law, persecutor of Christians, that I would attain to the resurrection? It's just like you and I when we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? We're not asking in a genuine way and saying, I, am I really saved? We're marveling at, at the fact that God could rescue us. And I think that's somewhat of what Paul has in mind here in verse 11. But, but here's the point either way. All of the hardship and all of the suffering is temporary. That all of the repeated experiences of fellowshipping with Christ's suffering and experiencing the power of resurrection and being transformed in, in this life are always incomplete. We never, in this life, we don't fully get to the image of Christ. In this life, we don't fully experience resurrection. But when he speaks of attaining to the resurrection from the dead, Paul's reminding us that someday, someday we will leave behind this life and these bodies of sin, as Paul says in Romans 6, will be brought to nothing, and we will be raised, and we will be incorruptible, and we will not be subject to temptation and sin, and we will be imperishable, and we will be in the presence of our Savior, and we will be like Jesus. As John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul says, that's our hope. We're, we're learning and we're growing through the experience of suffering and temptation and hardship, and that is bringing us to a place of crying out for help and knowing God's mercy and his power. But one day, one day, beloved, we will be raised. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, you will be raised imperishable, and you will be in his presence and like him forevermore. That is our great joy and hope. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as a people who uh, we, we can be so prone to independence, 
self-sufficiency. We don't do it because we're, we're somehow trying to defy you. We do it because our nature so often just sort of draws us into, into prayerlessness, into straying away from meditating on your word. It, we're so easily drawn toward this posture of just sort of pressing through life almost in a, in a practical form of agnosticism, knowing fully that you are there and yet acting as if you're not. And in your grace and your kindness, you so repeatedly use circumstances to bring us to a place of need. Lord, I pray for this body of believers. You know where, where people are at. Some are hurting in ways that are so much greater. They're going through hardship. They are suffering in some way. They are battling with an illness or a, a difficult person, hard relationship, painful circumstances at work or at home. And Lord, thank you that your word makes it clear that this is not happening in some sort of random, chaotic way, purposeless sort of suffering that just seems to go nowhere. But that you are teaching us and reminding us that each time we, we have fellowship with the suffering of Christ, each time we feel pain and and are agonizing in situations. Thank you for, for using that to humble us, to, to strip away our pride and our self-sufficiency, and to cause us to cry out, say, Lord, please be at work in this. Accomplish your glory in this. Transform me through this. Teach me through this. And thank you that we can look back and see those instances, those real examples of times of hardship where we, we came to know you just a little better. We came to grow in the image of Christ just a, a little bit better. And thank you that you who has begun that good work in us will carry it through to completion until the day when we are in the presence of our Savior, made whole and complete. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who were they to, to face death or even just hardship, has no hope for that. Not have a, a knowledge of Christ that, that you would bring them to that place as, as Paul did of saying, I, I, don't, I don't need to know anything else except knowing Christ. I need to know Jesus. I need to know that he died for my sin. That he rose again and I want to pray that even this day you would graciously save any here, any watching online who are, who are in need of, of that work that you would change them and transform them this day. Father, for this body of believers, for your church here, Grace Bible Church, help us to be thankful and to rejoice as you transform us. Help us in the midst of pain and sorrow and suffering to rejoice in these truths of the gospel, that you are at work in this, your power is still sufficient, your grace is sufficient, 
And you are raising us up and changing us, and you ultimately will raise up your own, that they will experience the resurrection from the dead and be with you forevermore. Thank you for these truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.